and welcome to today's reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald for Thursday, February the 8th, 2024. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik, and here is our first story. It's entitled, Sister Testifies About Victim's Fear of Estranged Husband. It's written by Grace Neeland of the Telegraph Herald, and the dateline is Maquoketa, Iowa. An area woman fatally shot in 2022 had expressed mounting fears about the man accused of killing her, according to the testimony presented Wednesday at the Jackson County Courthouse. Christopher E. Pritchard, age 58, of Bellevue, Iowa, is charged in Iowa District Court of Jackson County with first-degree murder and first-degree robbery in the fatal shooting of his estranged wife, Angela Pritchard, age 55. He has pleaded not guilty. Authorities found Angela Pritchard dead from an apparent gunshot wound on October the 8th, 2022, at the business she operated, Mississippi Ridge Boarding Kennels, in Bellevue. The two were separated at the time of her death, and no, and a no-contact order against Christopher Pritchard was in place for Angela Pritchard. Attorneys on Wednesday presented opening statements, and jurors heard testimony from a total of 10 witnesses. The state's final witness was Wendy Buddy, Angela Pritchard's sister. Buddy testified that Angela Pritchard was living with her at the time of her death, and had been since late August 2022, when Angela Pritchard had requested and received a no-contact order against her husband, Christopher. Things had started going downhill six to eight months prior to that, Buddy testified. Angela started to be more scared of him. His demeanor changed, his attitude changed, and he was just turning into a different person. Buddy said Angela's fear continued after she moved and that Christopher Pritchard numerous times circled the area of the house in his vehicle. Buddy also read for the jury excerpts from Angela Pritchard's journal, which she kept fastidiously before her death. I'm always looking over my shoulder to see if he's around, one entry read. I'm scared of him and what he's capable of. Angela Pritchard operated Mississippi Ridge Boarding Kennel just north of Bellevue and frequently arrived early in the mornings, according to testimony from original kennel owner Jim Ketman. Ketman and his wife ran the kennel for years before leasing the business to Angela. He said Christopher Pritchard sometimes would work with Angela at the kennels before the couple's separation. Surveillance footage from a nearby home showed Angela Pritchard's vehicle arriving at the kennel at about 7.35 a.m. October the 8th, 2022. The same footage, which was played for the jury, also included audio of a loud bang that rang out in the area roughly five minutes later. That timeline matched a 911 call from Angela Pritchard's phone that came into the Joe Davies County, Illinois Emergency Dispatch Center that morning. Dispatcher Patrick Wright took the call and testified Wednesday to its contents. With a cell phone, the call will go through the nearest tower, so if the tower is in our county, then we receive the call even if it's not in our county, Wright said as explanation for why he received the Jackson County call. A recording of the call was played for the jurors and included a woman telling a person she called Chris to leave several times before a loud bang is heard. The woman screams, then goes quiet, and dogs can be heard in the background. Wright testified that he repeatedly asked the caller if she was there, but never got a response. Using cellular data provided by the call, he identified the address of the incident and passed the information along to law enforcement in the correct jurisdiction. The first officer on the scene was Bellevue Police Chief Dennis Schroeder, followed shortly by Iowa Department of Natural Resources Park Ranger Jason Gilmore. 
the pair entered the boarding facility and cleared the scene. Schroeder testified to locating Angela Pritchard's body during the clearing process and said she was found lying face down in a pool of blood. He checked for a pulse but found none. As much as I wanted there to be a pulse, it just wasn't there, he told the jury. Bellevue EMS paramedic Chris Reed also responded to the scene on the morning of October the 8th, 2022. He testified Wednesday that he assessed Angela Pritchard's condition upon arrival and called an off official time of death at 8.12 a.m. Reed confirmed under cross-examination that no treatment was delivered because he determined upon assessing her body that resuscitation efforts would be unsuccessful. Several other members of law enforcement also testified Wednesday to their initial response to the scene, including those from Iowa State Patrol and the Jackson County Sheriff's Department. No gun was located near Angela Pritchard's body, nor were any shell casings. No suspects were located at the scene. Multiple officers testified, though the surveillance footage collected from the nearby home showed what appeared to be a male figure leaving the area of the kennels shortly after the loud bang was heard. During opening statements, Christopher Pritchard's attorney, Leanne Striegel, told jurors they likely would be presented evidence throughout the trial, but asked they keep an open mind until the totality of the facts is presented. This is a case where you need to know what you don't know, Striegel said. What we have here are pieces of evidence that the state is going to tell you are relevant to come up with the picture that they want you to see. The trial will convene at 9 a.m. today at the county, Jackson County Courthouse. Live updates will be posted throughout the day online at twitter.com slash telegraph herald. Next up is an article entitled, Local Tourism Officials Seeing Signs of Health After Pandemic. Riverboat Tours Youth Baseball Tournaments Contribute to the Area's Tourism Surge. It's written by Andy Piper of the Telegraph Herald. When Studebaker's Drivers Club members arrive in Dubuque in late June, tourism officials say it will illustrate that business conferences and conventions have returned to the area in full force. Many organizations remained cautious post-COVID-19 to schedule large gatherings for businesses and pleasure, but when 800 Studebakers traverse Dubuque's streets and area points of interest June 25th through 29th, those in the travel and tourism sector say it will be a conspicuous sign of health in the sector. Coming out of the pandemic, the slowest thing to come back was meetings, and we're starting to see that come back very strong, said Keith Ray, president and CEO of Travel Dubuque. They expect to see 800 Studebaker cars here, and they're going to be here for four or five days, bringing 800 hotel room nights per night to our area. We're also going to have a huge baseball tournament going on at that time, so 2024 is going to be busy. Ray presented an upbeat assessment of the area's travel and tourism industry to the Dubuque City Council this week. Among the reported highlights in 2023 was the hotel-motel occupancy rate. It hit 61.9%, a 4 percentage point increase over 2022, and was 5.8 percentage points above the state average. Hotel-motel tax revenues amounted to $2.43 million in 2024, nearly double the $1.79 million collected in 2022. Two relatively new sectors have contributed to Dubuque area's tourism resurgence since the pandemic-related downturn, riverboat tours and youth baseball tournaments at Fields of Dreams in Dyersville. The Port of Dubuque, 
greeted 46,500 rivet boat passengers in 2023, an increase of 6,300 passengers from 2022, as Viking River Cruises completed its first full season at nearly full capacity and completed all of its scheduled visits. This is an element that continues to grow year by year, Ray said. There are some things we can't control, like the level of the river. It can get too high, and lately it's been too low. But the city does a great job of dredging right in front of the American Trust Plaza, making sure we can get all of those riverboats in there and all the activity it brings to our downtown area and all the activity it brings to our neighbors. I just want to thank the city for the foresight that it had 20-some years or 25 years ago now to develop that port and making that key to our area, Ray continued. The city saw and it continues to be a major draw for us on a daily basis. Travel Dubuque has taken over operations of the Field of Dreams and the growing sector of travel youth tournaments. Last year, Field of Dreams became a destination for 370 teams from 22 states from as far away as California. This year, we're facilitating all of it, Ray said. With us running it, we can reach out to those teams in advance. We are at 320 teams right now and significantly ahead of where we were last year. Our goal is 400 teams. Ray said 95% of those teams stayed overnight in Dubuque but fanned out across the region by day. We know from follow-up surveys that a lot of those teams went to Bright Box in Sherrill to enjoy that unique experience of eating up there and looking down on the Mississippi River Valley, he said. It really gives us an opportunity to showcase all of the things in the area, like the Mississippi River Museum and Aquatic and Aquarium, and they can go to Cascade and visit Red Faber Museum. A lot of our partners around the county and the region see the impact of this. This year also marks the 35th anniversary of the Field of Dreams, and several special events are in the works to celebrate the milestone. The Ghost Players will host shows July 6th, July 20th, August 3rd, and August 17th, including guest ghost players that just might include some celebrities. We can't really announce them yet, but we are pretty excited about where we are at with trying to get them here, Ray said. We'll see. Another Field of Dreams showcase event is being planned for Labor Day weekend. Dueling Dogs, Doc Dogs, also returns in 2024 to Five Flag Center. The World Championship event is scheduled for October 22nd through 27th, a longer stay than in past years. So there are going to be a lot of barking dogs downtown, but it generates a lot of people, Ray said. Last year, they had over 600 unique competitors from around the United States and Canada. They love Dubuque, and they really enjoy coming here. Through December 31st, travel and tourism has generated $1.3 million in revenue to Dubuque, with a total of $2.1 million in sight by the end of fiscal year 2024 on June 30th. If you're doing stuff that is of major benefit to the entire region, but especially to the city of Dubuque, Mayor Brad Kavanaugh told Ray at the conclusion of his remarks. So, thank you. Our final story from the front page of the Telegraph Herald today, Evers visits Darlington School, touts mental health efforts. Wisconsin Governor learns about new initiative aimed at building support systems for students. It's written by Maya Bond. 
The dateline is Darlington, Wisconsin. Greeted with music and honorary membership to the school's kindness club, Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers and Department of Health Services Secretary Kirsten Johnson spent Wednesday morning meeting with staff and students during a tour of Darlington Elementary slash Middle School. During the visit, officials showed Evers and Johnson the school's new mental health initiative, Sources of Strength, while Evers highlighted his work to support Wisconsin student mental health resources. Evers spoke with school officials about the new initiative before meeting students in multiple classrooms to learn about their lessons and answer questions. Principal Mike Flanagan said Sources of Strength is a new program at the school that helps guidance counselors work with students to build support systems and increase social connectedness. It's an effort to help students understand that they have a lot of sources of strength from which they can pull, inclusive of positive friendships, positive adults, recreational activities in which they engage to de-stress, Flanagan said. Then it promotes the idea of restorative circles that allow students to openly and bravely and safely share their ideas. As the program develops, there may be ways for older students to take on larger roles in the implementation of activities or mentorship opportunities, Flanagan said. Lori Nodorft, middle school counselor and assistant principal at Darlington Elementary slash Middle School, told Evers and Johnson that one of the most important parts of what she does as a counselor is helping build relationships. The Sources of Strength curriculum aims to bolster those relationship-building efforts through lessons that incorporate games, emotional regulation practice, and creative expression, according to the program's website. Whether helping adults foster relationships with children or helping students build relationships with one another, Nodorft said it's all about ensuring a safe environment where everyone feels comfortable and supported. Practices include talking circles in which students share their thoughts and feelings and build relationships with one another. A big part of the sources of strength is the circles and being able to feel comfortable opening up with each other, Nodorft said. Evers commended school officials for their commitment to supporting students' mental health, a topic about which he has vocalized his commitment. During his January State of the State address, Evers announced he is creating an interagency council on mental health through which state agencies will work together to address mental health service gaps. That work will include the council creating a statewide action plan for mental health using cross-agency partnerships to strengthen programs and developing proposals for ways to best address mental health care access. The council also will work to improve factors that contribute to residents' mental health, such as access to health care, housing, food, financial security, and social connectedness. Evers also touted in a news release his push for mental health supports in the 2023 through 2025 biennial state budget that includes $30 million to continue the Get Kids Ahead initiative, which funnels money to schools for mental health-related programming. As part of their visit, Evers and Johnson met with multiple classes to hear from students. Evers encouraged them to, above all, focus on their education. Going to school and learning as much as you can is really important, he said. In another classroom, students introduced Evers and Johnson to the school's kindness club, where students bring positivity into their worlds through acts of kindness and relationship-building activities. 
Students presented Evers with a certificate naming him an honorary member of the club. Flanagan said he and others at the school were happy to share the ways Darlington Elementary slash Middle School is doing supporting students. We're just honored to have an esteemed guest like that, he said. We believe that we are doing some amazing things here at Darlington Elementary slash Middle School, and we just love to share the great things that are going on. Now on the Dubuque and Tri-State page, early voting begins in Illinois for March primary. Voters in Galena will decide on a $14.2 million bond measure that would fund high school renovations. This is written by Elizabeth Kelsey, Dateline, Galena, Illinois. Galena School District voters next month will decide the fate of a $14.2 million general obligation bond that could help the district renovate its high school. Early voting begins today for the March 19th Illinois general primary election. Voters will nominate candidates for federal, state, and county-level offices who will be officially elected in November. Also on the primary ballot will be a bond measure for Galena School District, which, if approved, would fund construction of a 66,000-square-foot addition between the newly renovated Galena Elementary and Middle School and Galena High School. Close to 22,000 square feet of existing space on the western portion of the high school would be renovated, while the original 1957 high school on the east side of the building would be deconstructed to make way for an updated gymnasium. Superintendent Tim Vincent said the high school's infrastructure is in poor shape, from deteriorating pipes and asbestos in floor tiles to a lack of air conditioning and inefficient heating. The facility also does not have a secure main entrance, presenting safety concerns. We also have very congested traffic on Franklin Street, and we're looking to expand our parking lot so we can improve the traffic flow by pulling cars off the street, he said. Total project costs are estimated at $28.4 million. Officials plan to use district reserves to cover the $14.2 million not included in the bond. The district estimates that a home valued at $100,000 would see an estimated annual tax increase of $99 to $126 for 20 years if the bond measure were to pass. A tax estimation tool along with more information about the bond is available at gusd120.k12.il.com. U.S. slash page slash referendum dash information. This board is very sensitive to the needs of the taxpayers and the intention is to do something that will serve our needs well for the next 50 years, Vincent said. In addition to the Galena School District referendum, two other measures will be on the ballot in Joe Davies counties. Elizabeth Road District will ask voters to approve a new tax for permanent road purposes and Dunleith Menominee Fire Protection District will ask voters to increase its limiting rate. Two contested county-level elected positions are on March's primary ballot. And here's how you can vote. Early voting for the March 19th general primary election begins today and continues through March 18th from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. on weekdays and from 9 a.m. to noon, Saturday, March 16th. Early voting for registered voters will take place at the county clerk's office in the temporary Joe Davies County Courthouse location at 219 Kelly Lane. 
the former Galena Primary School. Registered Galena School District voters also can vote early from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. February 23rd at Galena High School, 1206 North Franklin Street. For those who are not currently registered, grace period registration and in-person voting will take place February 21st through March 19th at the County Clerk's Office. For more information, contact the County Clerk's Office at area code 815-777-0161. Today's Throwback Thursday article is entitled, Fire Destroys Office Warehouse of Downtown Dubuque Business in 1969. It's written by Eric Hogstrom of the Telegraph Herald. One of the most destructive fires in Dubuque history destroyed a business's downtown office and warehouse 55 years ago today. The fire in February 1969 destroyed facilities belonging to Rainbow Oil Company. Firefighters at the scene thought they had the blaze under control early, only to find their fire hoses unable to douse the flames due to a ruptured fire hydrant. Rainbow would return to South Main Street after the fire, only to relocate to its current location on Kerper Boulevard in 1986 due to a state highway project. Here's how the Telegraph Herald reported on the fire in its February 9, 1969 edition. Water failure foils firemen first at scene. A spectacular fire destroyed the Rainbow Oil Company warehouse and office building at 300 South Main Street here Saturday, causing damage estimated at $250,000 to $500,000. Dubuque firemen had the blaze under control by about 2 p.m., but firefighters were expected to stay at the scene at least until Sunday morning to prevent smoldering ruins from flaring up again. About 10 Rainbow employees were in the building at 10 a.m. when the fire broke out, according to Bernard Bernard Fahey, president of the company. One of the men came in and said, there's a fire in the warehouse, so we grabbed five fire extinguishers while one of the men called the fire department, Fahey said. The 50-year-old building housed the Rainbow Oil offices, a supply of tires, batteries, and automotive accessories, and tires belonging to an adjacent company, the Rainbow Tire Service. Although fire department officials said they wouldn't speculate on the cause of the fire yet, Fahey said he thought the blaze started in faulty wiring. At first, we thought we had the fire out by the time the fire department arrived, Fahey said. Assistant Fire Chief John Kemps said there was considerable smoke in the building when the firemen arrived shortly after 10 a.m. Firemen took hoses into the building, Kemps said, and started to spray the fire, which was almost out. But the water suddenly stopped pumping through the huge fire hoses. The fire hydrant being used had ruptured, pouring gallons and gallons of water into the street instead of through the hoses. Firemen then had to run their hoses to another fire hydrant. In the meantime, the fire had flared up. From that point on, firefighters fought a losing battle as supplies of motor oil and tires in the building caught fire. Officials later speculated that the faulty hydrant had been struck by a car, cracked the underground water pipes supplying it. Although the detect the defective hydrant was bent over slightly, there was no way to tell that it was damaged. When that tremendous pressure was forced through the hydrant, it just burst right there, Kemp's said. Fire Chief Robert Dunphy said it was clearly possible that the fire could have been controlled early if the hydrant had not ruptured. Under the News in Brief heading comes an article entitled, Fundraising Begins for Dubuque's Annual Shop with a Cop Program. 
Donations are being accepted for the annual Dubuque to Police Department Shop with a Cop program held by the Dubuque Police Department Protective Association, the bargaining unit for the Dubuque police officers in conjunction with key services. The program features officers purchasing back-to-school clothing and supplies for area children. Last year, the effort raised approximately $30,000 to help over 100 Dubuque children purchase supplies ahead of the new school year. Shopping this year will take place in August at Target. Cash or check donations can be made through the end of August and can be dropped off at the Dubuque Law Enforcement Center, 770 Iowa Street, and solicitors with key services will also will provide information and ways to donate. All checks should be made out to Dubuque Police Protective Association. And authorities say one hurt in Dubuque County crash involving intoxicated driver. The dateline is Asbury, Iowa. Authorities said one person was injured in a crash involving an intoxicated driver in Dubuque County. Bradley T. Blocklinger, age 30, of Dubuque, was transported by ambulance to Mercy One Dubuque Medical Center for treatment of his injuries, according to the Dubuque County Sheriff's Department. A report states that Blocklinger was a passenger in a vehicle driven by Austin E. Meyer, age 28, of Asbury. Meyer was driving north in the 160th block of Hales Mill Road at 2.55 a.m. on February the 3rd when his vehicle entered a ditch and overturned while traveling on a curve. Meyer admitted to consuming alcohol and showed signs of impairment, according to the report. Meyer was arrested on a charge of operating while intoxicated and cited with failure to maintain control. And the Dubuque Police and Dubuque County Sheriff's Department reported that Shanna L. Kelsey, age 47, of Wyoming, Iowa, was arrested at 12.15 a.m. Tuesday at Dubuque Law Enforcement Center on warrants charging voluntary absence from custody, probation violation, failure to appear, identity theft, over $1,500, two counts of identity theft under $1,500, two counts of fifth-degree theft, and two counts of forgery. Court documents state that Kelsey did not return to the Dubuque County Jail from a furlough granted to visit an ill grandmother on June 29, 2019. Now we turn to the opinion page and we have an other view from Arthur Sire for the Telegraph Herald. Arthur Sire is author of After the Cold War. You can contact him at acyr at carthage.edu. And his other view is entitled, Blinken Makes Time for Africa. Secretary of State Antony Blinken started the new year with a sensible and productive visit to Africa. In late January, he traveled to Cabo Verde, Ivory Coast, Nigeria, and Angola. The purpose is to pursue long-term strategic ties with African nations with emphasis on partnership and economic development. For many years, China has devoted sustained attention to that continent. While the Sino-Soviet split occurred in the late 1950s, Beijing made the strategic decision to focus on poor non-white nations. Prominence of China today in Africa is in part a legacy of the fundamental split more than a half century ago between the two principal com communist powers during the Cold War. In Cabo Verde, emphasis was on the fact that the nation has completed two Millennium Challenge Corporation compacts and is beginning a third. Those involve U.S. grants for promising economic development projects. 
The nation has also been declared malaria-free by the World Health Organization. In Ivory Coast, emphasis was on new regional security efforts. The nation borders three other that have suffered recent coups, Burkina, Faso, Guinea, and Mali. Likewise, the visit to Nigeria involves security. Last July, the military in bordering Niger ousted the elected civilian leadership. Angola is the scene of a major new agreement on private investment, which the Biden administration is treating as a priority. The Lobido Corridor Rail Project is financed by African and European in addition to U.S. investment sources. The large-scale construction project is expected to be profitable and provide a positive counterweight to some of China's belt and road projects, which have suffered from shoddy construction, harsh loan terms for recipient nations, and commercial losses. During the later phase of the Cold War, the U.S. government supported Angola rebels fighting a government supported by the Soviet Union and Cuba. Historically, Americans have been absent-minded about Africa. Past presidents generally focused on other parts of the world, with notable exceptions. Senator John F. Kennedy, a Democrat from Massachusetts, was chairman of the African Affairs Subcommittee and the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, attentive to that responsibility and carried concern about Africa into the Oval Office. Former President Jimmy Carter in office and afterwards steadfastly worked with Africa projects. The Carter Center has devoted sustained emphasis to public health and related problems of that continent. One dramatic result is the virtual eradication of Guinea worm, a devastating, agonizing disease. Carter effectively leveraged his center's efforts into World Bank uh, work targeting the disease. Former President Bill Clinton achieved rock star status in Africa, a popular stop in his travels on behalf of the Clinton Foundation. Presidents George W. Bush and Barack Obama devoted at least periodic attention to the continent while in office reflecting the changing times. President John F. Kennedy deserves credit for establishing the Peace Corps, a concept promoted by former First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt and Senator Hubert Humphrey, a Democrat from Minnesota. The Peace Corps is remarkably durable today, involving selfless volunteers ranging widely in age. Related, enormous growth in private philanthropy means there are unprecedented opportunities to raise living standards across Africa. Basic safety and security, however, sometimes is challenging. Terrorists generate ongoing death, destruction, and headlines, but have yet to demonstrate appeal to the average person in Africa or elsewhere on the globe. By contrast, private economic development and investment along with representative government is slowly growing. The world is moving in our direction. And again, that was written by Arthur L, or I, excuse me, Arthur I Sire, C-Y-R, who is author of After the Cold War. You are listening to the Dubuque Telegraph Herald on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All programs heard on IRIS are intended solely for the use of people who are blind or print disabled. If you have any comments or concerns about this or any other IRIS program, you can give us a call at area code 515-243-68. Now we'll read today's obituaries and we'll start by remembering Roseanne Rosie 
Aher, age 91, of Cuba City, Wisconsin, who passed away peacefully on Tuesday, February the 6th, 2024, at home surrounded by her family. A massive Christian burial will be held at 11 a.m. on Friday, February the 9th, at St. Patrick's Catholic Church in Benton, Wisconsin, with Father Peter Auer officiating. Burial will be in the St. Patrick's Church Cemetery in Benton, Wisconsin. Family and friends may call from 9 a.m. until the time of service on Friday, February the 9th at St. Patrick's Catholic Church in Benton, Wisconsin. The Hawden Shield Funeral Home and Cremation Services in Cuba City, Wisconsin is serving the family. In lieu of plants and flowers, a Roseanne Rosie Kelleher Memorial Fund has been established. Online condolences may be left for the family at www.hawdenshieldfuneralhome.com. And Hawden Shield is spelled H-A-U-D-E-N-S-H-I-E-L-D. Next, we remember Mary K. Hurst, age 80, of Asbury, Iowa and formerly of East Dubuque, Illinois, who died on Friday, February the 2nd, 2024. Burial will take place in East Dubuque Cemetery. Complete arrangements are pending. Miller Funeral Home of East Dubuque is assisting the family. Now we remember Mary Ann Drees, age 98, of Dyersville, Iowa, who passed away Tuesday, February 6, 2024, at her home surrounded by a loving family. Visitation will be held from 9 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. on Friday, February the 9th, 2024 at Kramer Funeral Home in Dyersville, followed by a 1 p.m. Mass of Christian Burial at St. Francis Xavier Basilica in Dyersville. Burial will be in the church cemetery. Father Gabriel Mensa will officiate. Kramer Funeral Home in Dyersville is assisting the family, and information is available at www.kramerfuneral.com. Memorials may be sent to the family in care of Kramer Funeral Home, 750 12th Avenue Southwest, Dyersville, Iowa, 52040. Now we remember Ronald L. Ron Walton, age 75, of Dubuque, who passed away at 725 a.m. on Saturday, February the 3rd, 2024, at Sunnycrest Manor. To honor Ron's life, family and friends may visit from 10 to 11.45 a.m. on Friday, February 29th, 2020, February 9th, 2024, at Bear Funeral Home, 1491 Main Street. Funeral services will be held at 12 noon on Friday at Bear Funeral Home with Reverend Stephanie Schlimm officiating. Burial will be in Linwood Cemetery. The family will thankfully receive your support through greeting cards and memorials in Ron's memory, which may be mailed to Bear B-E-H-R, Funeral Home, 1491 Main Street, Dubuque, Iowa, 52001, Attention, Ronald Walton Family. Online condolences may be left for the family at www.bearbehrfuneralhome.com. And we remember Ron, Randy E. Wold, W-O-L-D, age 62, of Dubuque, who died on Monday, February the 5th, 2024. Visitation will be held from 3 to 6 p.m. Tuesday, February 13th at Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory, 2595 Rockdale Road. And finally, we remember Florence F. Pulse, age 99, of Dubuque, who passed away at 2.05 p.m. on Sunday, February the 4th, 2024, at Stone Hill Health Center, surrounded by her loving family. 
to honor Florence's life, family, and friends may visit from 1 to 4 p.m. on Sunday, February the 11th, 2024, at Bear Funeral Home, 1491 Main Street, where there will be a parish scripture service held at 3.45 p.m. Funeral services will be held at 10 a.m. on Monday, February the 12th, 2024, at St. Joseph the Worker Church, 2001 St. Joseph Street, with a with very Reverend Brian M. Delahert Delert officiating. Burial will be in St. Peter and Paul Cemetery in Cheryl. The family will thankfully receive your support through greeting cards and memorials in Florence's memory, which will be distributed among her favorite charities and may be mailed to Bear Funeral Home, 1491 Main Street, Dubuque, Iowa, 52001. Attention, Flora, Florence Pulse, P-U-L-S, family. Online condolences may be left for the family at www.bearfuneralhome.com. Under the funeral services headings, we have Robert E. Barton of Mauston, Wisconsin. Visitation 10 to 11.45 a.m. Saturday, February 10th, Bearer Funeral Home, 1491 Main Street. Service noon Saturday at the funeral home. David J. Buss, Burton, Wisconsin. Visitation 9 to 11 a.m. Saturday, February 10th, Martin Schwartz Funeral Home and Crematory, Lancaster, Wisconsin. Service 11 a.m. Saturday at the funeral home. Celebration of life following service and burial, Burton Town Hall. Sharon M. Hamill, Dubuque. Visitation 4 to 7 p.m. with a rosary service at 6.30 p.m. today. Egelhoff, Siegert, and Casper Funeral Home and Crematory, 2659 John F. Kennedy Road. Massive Christian Burial, 10 a.m. Friday, at 9, Friday, February the 9th at St. Colum Kyle Catholic Church. Roger Holdridge, Dubuque. Happy Hour, Visitation 3 to 5.30 p.m. Friday, February the 9th, Egelhoff, Siegert, and Casper Funeral Home and Crematory at 2659 John F. Kennedy Road. Farewell Toast Service, 5.30 p.m. Friday at the Funeral Home. Marilyn J. Humphrey, Schulzburg, Wisconsin. Visitation 9 to 11 a.m. Saturday, February the 10th, Hodden Shield Funeral and Home and Cremation Services, Cuba City. Service 11 a.m. Saturday at the funeral home. Mary E. Jensen of Dubuque. Visitation 10 to 11 a.m. Friday, February the 9th. Unitarian Universalist Fellowship of Dubuque. Service 11 a.m. Friday at the church. James G. Kennedy of Dubuque. Visitation 4 to 7 p.m. Friday, February the 9th at Hoffman Schneider and Kitchen Funeral Home and Crematory, 3860 Asbury Road. Service 10.30 a.m. Saturday, February the 10th at the Funeral Home. Thomas C. Moss of Dubuque. Visitation 9 to 11.45 a.m. Friday, February the 9th, Hoffman Schneider and Kitchen Funeral Home and Crematory, 3860 Asbury Road. Service noon Friday at the Funeral Home. Richard J. Peters of Galena, Illinois. Visitation 4 to 7 p.m. today, Furlong Funeral Chapel in Galena. Service 11 a.m. Friday, February the 9th at the Funeral Home. Larry L. Putman of Bellevue, Iowa. Visitation 4 to 7 p.m. today and from 9.30 to 10.30 a.m. Friday, February the 9th, Hockman Meyer Funeral Home and Cremation Service, Bellevue. Service 11 a.m. Friday, St. Joseph's Catholic Church in Bellevue. 
Patricia Woodward, Galena, Illinois, Celebration of Life, 11 a.m. Friday, February the 9th, Galena Bible Church, and Glenda Young, Stockton, Illinois, Visitation, 10 a.m. to noon, Monday, February 12th, Herman Funeral Home in Stockton, Service, noon, Monday, at the Funeral Home. Now we turn to the sports page, and we'll start with girls prep basketball, uh, the Western Dubuque Bobcats. The title is Foundation for Success. Western Dubuque captures first conference title since joining MVC. This is written by Danny Miller. Last year's improbable postseason run laid the foundation for this season's turnaround. Now the Western Dubuque Bobcats can call themselves conference champions. Limping into postseason play following a three-win, 18-loss regular season, the 2022-2023 Bobcats made a late push and nearly reached the Iowa Class 4A state tournament before falling just short in a regional championship. It definitely boosted our confidence going into this year with how we played those last three games of last year, said Bobcats senior guard Carson Kopernick. We all played so well in the postseason, and it really just set the tone for us this year, which is turning out really well for us. Western Dubuque clinched the Mississippi Valley Conference Valley Division title on Tuesday with a 48-41 victory at Waterloo West, marking the Bobcats' first league championship since joining the MVC prior to the 2018-2019 season. The road to a conference championship was a bumpy one, a joggernaut in the Wa-Ma-Sea East, and winners of four straight conference titles from 2014 to 2017, WD struggled in his transition to the predominantly Class 5A MVC. The Bobcats went 10 wins, 13 losses in 2018-2019, but had a combined 18-win, 73-record loss record over the next four seasons. This year, they are at 15 wins and counting. Ostwinkle said she noticed a shift in her players' mindset during last year's postseason march. When we did get some of those wins late in the season, I think they saw that they can compete with anybody, and that's really where they are right now, Ostwinkle said. Just that belief goes a long way in sports, going onto the court knowing that we are the ones that need to be stopped versus the other way around. Tuesday's conference championship clinching win capped a special two-day stretch for Kaepernick, who on Monday became WD's all-time steals leader in a victory over Cedar Rapids Jefferson. I could not have accomplished any of it without my teammates, Kaepernick said. They've pushed me throughout these years that we've been playing together, and I could not have done it without them. Kaepernick's four-year varsity journey mimics WD's ascent in a nutshell. A full-time starter as a freshman in 2020-2021, Kaepernick saw her sophomore season end after just two games following a second ACL tear. She's such a competitor, Ostwinkle said. Carson is our spark. She brings that intensity, lays it all on the line with her body, and just loves the game. Fellow four-year starter Brooklyn Furslaff also saw her sophomore season cut short with a multitude of injuries. Coming in as freshmen, they had this goal, Ostwinkle said. Those injuries definitely took a toll on them and played into some of our losses over the years, but now I get to see them take the reins of this team. As coaches, we are guiding them through, but their leadership has been the difference these last few weeks. They expect big things from this group, and you can see it in everyone's eyes. 
WD ranked number 14 in Class 4A, carries an eight-game win streak into its regular season finale Friday against Linmar. The Bobcats kick off postseason play on February the 17th at home against either Charles City or Decorah. This time, Kaepernick expects to take it one step further. We're also motivated, she said. We got so close to the state tournament last year that it's been our, on our minds ever since. We've accomplished so much since then and feel like it's right within our grasp. We're going to keep pushing each other until we get there. The Telegraph Herald Athlete of the Week is Dubuque senior William Fry. And the article is entitled, Consistency Leads Fry Back to State. It's written by Shannon Mum. Dubuque seniors William Fry is set for a busy Iowa State swim meet this weekend. The sophomore led off the winning 200-yard medley relay to open last Saturday's district meet in Dubuque before finishing second in the 100 backstroke and fourth in the 100 butterfly. The Telegraph Herald Athlete of the Week also swam a leg on the fifth-place 400 freestyle relay, qualifying for state in all four events. William has been a very consistent swimmer for us this season and has been dropping time all season long, senior coach Jesse Huff said. Despite being a sophomore, he is a leader on the team and really does a nice job of keeping the guys in line. The way he trains and races sets a great example for all of our swimmers. Fry was a three-event state qualifier last season as a freshman and just missed finals in his individual events. His medley relays team finished 10th overall. Getting to state in high school is a lot different than getting there for club, Fry said. It's something you really have to work for, and I put in the work. That's part of swimming that I enjoy, seeing your hard work pay off. Fry said nerves may have played a small role in his state performance. I don't feel like I lived up to the expectations I set for myself, he said. To miss finals by such a slim margin was really disappointing for me. Fry made it his mission to improve over the offseason, spending countless hours in the pool. William has an impressive work ethic, Huff said. He is one of the hardest trainers that I've coached, and he loves to push himself to the limit. I know he is determined to have a better finish at this year's state meet. Fry's time of 52.97 seconds in the 100 butterfly at the district meet set a new school freshman-slash-sophomore record. I went out and swam my own race and ended up swimming faster than I expected, Fry said. I thought I might have broken the Frosh Soft record. That was something I wanted to do before the season was over, but I didn't expect to do it before state. Fry was not fully tapered out, not fully tapered at districts and is excited to drop more time this weekend. I want to continue to get faster as the season progressed, and that's been going great so far, he said. Fry helped the Rams qualify for state in all three relays for the first time since 2019. Relays are different than individual events because you are out there trying to help your teammates succeed as well, he said. These guys are my best friends, and we all want to swim our best for each other. In boys' high school basketball, East Dubuque defeated Stockton 54-37. to The Warriors handle Stockton is the, name, is the title of the article. It's written by Steve Stoles. For a player that is not embarrassed to have a nickname of Hollywood, East Dubuque senior Carter Weedmeyer played like he was starring in a movie as his 21 points led the Warriors to a 54-37 win over Stockton Wednesday night at East Dubuque High School. The win kept East Dubuque in first place in the NUIC West at eight wins, one loss, with three conference games to go. How does a kid from East Dubuque get such a nickname? 
I'm a shoe fiend, Weedmeyer admitted with a smile. I buy more shoes than I should, but I also like the outfits and sunglasses. I just like style like it's Hollywood. Stockton opened the game hitting four three-point baskets and seven out of ten shots to take a 20-11 first quarter lead, including three trays from Bennett Graves. Weedmeyer scored eight of the Warriors' 11 first quarter points. East Dubuque slowly clawed their way back into the game with a badgering pressure man-to-man defense on the perimeter, and Stockton started turning the ball over. The Blackhawks turned to ball turned the ball over six times in the last four minutes as the Warriors went on a 16-4 run in that time span, highlighted by three baskets from Aiden Collin, a three from Braden Lee, and a baseline jump shot at the halftime buzzer by Brody. Culbertson to give East Dubuque a 30-26 lead. The deliberate Stockton offensive attack limited the number of possessions in the third quarter as East Dubuque only had the ball 10 times. They pushed the lead to 40-33 with six points to end the quarter, including two baskets by Weedmeyer and an acrobatic one-handed offensive rebound put back at the buzzer. East Dubuque applied the dagger to start the fourth quarter with back-to-back three-pointers by Collin and Culbertson to take a 46-33 lead, and Stockton could get no closer the rest of the game. For the game, East Dubuque forced 18 Stockton turnovers, and resulted that resulted in 26 points for the Warriors, who thrive on transition basketball. The transition baskets help East Dubuque shoot 51% for the game while committing only six turnovers. Weedmeyer was impressed with the Warrior defensive effort. You get down early and it's not what you're hoping for, he said. I was glad I was able to keep us in the game early until we could rally a bit, and then the rest of the guys got going. Props to Aiden Collin and Brody Culbertson. Our ball pressure was great. In the local and area roundup, Mustangs, Rams meet in postseason. An intra-city matchup highlights the Iowa girls basketball class 4A and 5A postseason pairings released on Wednesday. All regional contests tip off at 7 p.m. Dubuque Hempstead and Dubuque Senior will meet for a third time when the Mustangs host the Rams in a 5A opener on February the 18th. The winner travels to 5A number 7 ranked Cedar Falls in the semifinals on February the 17th. Class 4A, number 14 ranked Western Dubuque, will host either Decorah or Charles City in a Region 2 semifinal on February the 17th. Number 12, Makokota, hosts Clinton in a 4A Region 5 quarterfinal on February 14th, with the winner advancing to number 11 ranked Marion on February 17th. Class 4A and 5A Regional Championship contests will take place on February 20th at the location of the highest remaining seed. I will end with an article about Caitlin Clark entitled, Clark Showed Early Signs of Being a Phenom. Caitlin Clark's skills were so advanced when she was in grade school that her parents signed her up to play on boys' teams. By the time she entered middle school, she was well-known in basketball circles across Iowa. This was long before Clark became one of the faces of women's basketball and now on the cusp of setting the NCAA Division I scoring record. Clark was in sixth grade when Jan Jensen first heard about her. 
Not long after, Iowa's associate head coach and chief recruiter went to watch the prodigy from West Des Moines. She saw a confident player making pinpoint passes, often too hot for her teammates to handle, someone who was creative on drives to the hoop, and of course, someone willing to launch the deep three-pointers that would become her signature and one of the reasons she's one of the United States' highest-profile female athletes. It didn't take but a second, maybe a minute, Jensen said. That little step back sassy three, this little seventh, eighth grader, yeah, she's diff. You could just tell. They're easy to identify, but really hard to get. Everyone can see the true, true ones. The trick is to get them. Clark needs 66 points to break the NCAA career record of 3,527 by Washington's Kelsey Plum. The Hawkeyes play Penn State at home on Thursday with an average of 32.4 points per game. Clark is on track to break the record at Nebraska on Sunday or February 15th at home against Michigan. I didn't predict this to happen, but just knowing her work ethic, knowing her passion for the sport, knowing her fearlessness, I'm really not surprised, said Kristen Meyer, who coached Clark from 2016 to 2020 at Dowling Catholic High School in West Des Moines. More than anything, I'm so happy for her to get to accomplish all of these things to grow the sport and to grow the popularity of women's basketball and also the state of Iowa. The daughter of Brent Clark and Ann Nizzy Clark grew up as a middle child in a sports-centric family. Caitlin said when she first started playing basketball, she would cry after every game her team lost. That's because of how much I cared, she said in an interview with the Associated Press. I'm like six years old and it didn't matter, obviously, but it mattered to me. That passion for winning took root when she and her brothers Blake and Colin played board games and all kinds of sports against each other. She recalled a basement Nerf basketball game with Colin that got overheated. I just threw him into the wall, she said. He went flying and his head slapped into it. He put his hand back and it was just full of blood. He runs upstairs to mom. She goes and gets a bunch of staples in his head. Caitlin's high school coach was preparing for her first year at Dowling High School in 2016 when she heard about a stud eighth grader who would be joining the team. I was like, okay, that's nice. We'll have a good player, Meyer said. And then she went to watch Clark's AAU club in the spring before her freshman year. Oh, she's really good, Meyer remembers thinking and realized she would build her first team around Clark. Coaching Clark was sometimes a challenge, Meyer said, because she was so advanced in her skills and basketball IQ. As that happened, as has happened during her career at Iowa, Clark would show frustration in the target if of one of her passes wasn't ready to catch or if a player didn't unfold as designed. There were times the competitiveness of her kind of took over or she wasn't as patient, Meyer said. But every high schooler has to grow through some things and looking back, her skill level was on a different level than other people, so it was harder for her at times. Clark, who never won a high school state title, ranks number four on the Iowa High School 5-on-5 career scoring chart with 2,547 points. Many Iowa schools played 6-on-6 into the 1980s and 90s. Clark's AAU team, the All-Iowa Attack, won the 2018 Nike GEYBI National Championship and was runner-up in 2017 and 2019. She won gold medals at the international level with the USA Under-16 and Under-19 teams. One of her fellow 
dis- one of her few disappointments and another source of motivation came the summer after her sophomore season when she was left off the 12-player roster for the USA U-17 team. She's one who loves the challenge and then responds to it, Meyer said. She took a big step between her sophomore and junior year, and a lot of that was due to not making the team. Clark was Gatorade National Player of the Year after averaging 32.6 points per game as a junior. Her defining high school game came late that season as Mason City, where she made a state record 13 three-pointers on 17 attempts and scored 60 points in just one point off the state record. By then, Clark was a consensus five-star prospect and receiving attention from almost every major program. The Hawkeyes ultimately won out over Notre Dame. Megan Meyer, no relation to Clark's high school coach, who played AAU ball with Clark and was her teammate at Iowa for a year, was one of the Mason City players who tried to defend her. Mason City was no pushover, and most of Clark's shots were contested in the 32-minute game. I remember thinking, how in the world can someone score 60 points in a high school basketball game, Megan Meyer said. Clark hit six threes and scored 25 points in the first quarter alone. When the game ended, the Mason City student section lined up to get her autograph, same as fans do after Iowa games now. That game, I'm sure, had a lot of foreshadowing of what was to come, Jan Jensen said. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. I've been your reader, Scott Splavik. Thanks for sharing your time with Iris.